Good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome back to the Pastor's Class. If you're joining us tonight for the first time, you ought to know we've been in a series through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and tonight we're going to be in chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you do, there's a couple things you ought to know. Going along with this study, we have a couple resources, one you can purchase and one we offer for free that'll help assist you as we walk through this book. The one resource you can find on Amazon, it's called the Christ-Centered Exposition of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It's a very small volume, a real accessible commentary. Uh, this volume was written by Mark Howell. It'd be a great resource for you as we walk through these two letters written by Paul. But tonight, and we offer this free every week, we have a PDF outline of each of the lessons that you can get. It's actually attached to this video feed, or you can find it on our church website. Grab that uh, outline, and it'll help serve you as we walk through this book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at the second text in this short book that speaks of the end times. You may have heard this word eschatological. That refers to the end times. And tonight, we're going to look at the second text in this book that speaks to this very interesting a real thought-provoking, but oftentimes confusing and unknown doctrine of the last things, of the end times. And tonight we'll look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So why don't you read with me as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. Now we're not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, well, they're drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would come and by the power of your Holy Spirit, minister your word through this unusual medium. Lord, would you speak to your people tuned into this broadcast this evening for the glory of your name and for the good of this church we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take it to the bank. Jesus is coming back. I want you to feel the weight of that wonderful reality. The story is not over. The narrative of the Bible has not concluded. Now, the revelation is done. We're not expecting another book, but we are still living within this story. 
Jesus came in the fullest revelation of God his first time at the great incarnation when he came as a child. But Jesus, after he died, resurrected, and ascended to the Father, he has declared in multiple places with full authority that he will come again. And you and I are presently living in that day where we are longing and waiting with anticipation for him to fulfill that promise. Jesus is coming again. He will come again and he will right every wrong. He will recreate creation. He will reign and rule with full authority. The hopes and longings of every man, woman, and child are centered on this future hope, a great many of which have no idea that's the hope they long for. Indeed, the essence of sin is us trying to create what only Jesus will one day be able to create in full. We long for that day when Jesus will come again. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, is the cry of every true believer. But the difficult thing for us in time and space today, dealing with the prospect of Jesus coming again, you know, the difficult thing believers tend to fall into is that when we dwell, when we study the end times, when we think of those last things, well, when we study texts like the text I read this evening, the temptation when studying the end times is to speculate more than to be sanctified. The temptation is to study end times and to just let it pique your curiosity and make you start wondering and trying to figure out how this is all going to work, lining up your charts and figuring out how current events may fit into Jesus' promised second coming. We tend to speculate more than be sanctified by the end times. And our text is prescient for you and I tonight. For the Apostle Paul, so many years ago, as he was writing to this church in Thessalonica, he encountered believers not altogether different from you and I. For these believers at the church of Thessalonica, they were concerned. They were a bit worked up. And the reason they were worked up is they were fearful that Jesus may have perhaps already come back and that they were presently experiencing all this suffering because they were living in the end times, that they were experiencing the judgment of the Lord. And they were trying to figure out, wait, has he already come back? Did we miss it? Or if that hasn't happened, when is it going to happen? I, I, want some, I want some clarity. I don't want to live by faith in this. I want to know what should we be looking for? What are the signs and the seasons we should be looking for? And the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 5, he speaks directly to the hearts of these men and women. And in essence, in short, Paul essentially calls them to consider the end times not for its speculative value, as tempting as that may be. He calls them to study and dwell on and meditate upon the end times for its sanctifying value. Indeed, Paul essentially is calling these believers and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you and me tonight, to live like there is no tomorrow. Now, that can almost sound kind of trite, but it has gospel truth. Live like there's no tomorrow or live in light of eternity. I want these end times, the Paul says, to impact the way you live not just impact your theoretical debating and discussion. Live like there's no tomorrow. 
because you'll see at the beginning of this passage, Paul brings to the minds and hearts of these Thessalonian believers a certain event that is yet to come that should drive each and every one of us to our knees. That event that Paul speaks of, we see in verse 2. For in verse 2, Paul speaks of this great day of the Lord that is coming. This great judgment day that is coming. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible we see this judgment day. It's probably most famously discussed, of course, in the book of Revelation. But in addition even to the multiple spots in that book where this great judgment day of the Lord is spoken of, we actually see this theme all throughout the Bible. In fact, some scholars would go so far as to argue that the first judgment day we see is that first day in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve had sinned against God and it says, God in the cool of the day walked amongst the garden looking for Adam and Eve who were hiding themselves. A great many theologians would read into that text and say that day was the first day of judgment and the reason Adam and Eve hid is because they knew that sound of the Lord coming was the great sound of judgment. They knew they had sinned, their shame was ever before them, and God was coming in judgment and indeed that is exactly what happened. God brought judgment on them, sin broke everything apart, and the rest of the narrative of the Bible is a narrative of God coming in judgment and mercy. There is this great juxtaposition in the Bible between God's justice and His ever-loving, gracious, kind mercy. They seem to rub against each other, but they are part of God's great revelation to mankind. He is coming in judgment. And the scripture is very clear, as Paul makes clear in this text, that that great judgment day will come finally and decisively at the end of time, where he will once and for all finally judge mankind and recreate the Garden of Eden anew. He will recreate a perfect, perfect, perfect heaven on earth. Indeed, a new heaven and a new earth. And so today, what I'd like to invite you to do is to mark three simple things down that Paul is reminding us today about this great day of the Lord, this judgment day. The first thing I want you to mark down is this. Simply, number one, judgment day is coming. It's coming. It's not a theoretical thing. It is indeed coming. And the difficult thing with and a reality like this is most of us live as if that it isn't coming. Well, you may think about it privately, but in all practicality, we are tempted to live as if eh, that's probably not going to happen. Paul is impressing upon these believers, number one, it's coming. Look with me, if you will, at verse 1. Now he says, now concerning the times, that is in the Greek chronos, it refers to like calendar time, day and night. The times and the seasons, that in the Greek is kairos, and that'd be kind of like an epic or, you know, a, a long period of time. And he's saying, listen, concerning the times and the seasons, you know, you're trying to figure out when this is all going to happen. You're trying to get your, your chart in place. And Paul says, you don't need me to write anything more to you about this. In other words, Paul's saying, what God has already told you is all you need to know. It's, he's not withholding just to be mean. He has told you that which you need for godliness. I don't need to tell you anything else. You have all the knowledge you need about the end times. And he explains, verse 2, For you yourselves 
you're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, I want you to feel the weight of that statement. What Paul is essentially saying is this. When he says that judgment is coming, he is saying judgment is coming unexpectedly. I want you to mark that word down, unexpectedly. What he means by this is that judgment is going to come often like a thief would in the night. Well, no thief worth his salt would ever give a heads up to the homeowners when he's coming. There's a reason thieves tend to break in at night more than at during the day. Because at night there's the cover of darkness. It adds to the greater level of unexpecting. And so Paul is saying, just as a thief would come and break in unexpectedly at night, so too will this great day of the Lord. This final day of judgment is going to come and it is going to be unexpected. Now, in one sense, we as believers, we ought to expect this. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But the general theme Paul is trying to help us understand is there's not going to be some sort of countdown buildup where we're going to be like, we know it's happening on this day. Moreover, the great majority of the world is going to be stunned when this day comes. The great majority of the world is going to be shocked that this happens. And Paul makes this very clear as he continues in verse 3. Because right when he uses that analogy of the thief of the night, notice how he describes humanity when this happens. He says people are going to be saying there's peace and security. In other words, the common theme throughout the world is going to be, we have achieved peace and security. Now, it's hard to discern what exactly Paul means. It could mean socio-political peace and security, perhaps, or it could mean some sort of inner peace and security, wherein most people on earth have finally settled that there is no deity, there is no divine, that any peace and security mankind is capable of having can be found within. And so there is this general sense of judgment day won't come. There's no conceptual way it could ever happen. It is insane to consider that a God would come in judgment. Whichever it is, the point remains. It's coming unexpectedly and the vast majority of mankind will be utterly shocked when He comes in full glory, revealing His divine judgment. That's the first thing I want you to see about this judgment day. It's coming unexpectedly. But in addition, Paul also makes clear, it's coming unavoidably. Now I want you to feel uh, the additional weight of this concept that it's coming unavoidably. You can't avoid this. Look with me, if you will, at the latter half of verse 3. He uses the language of a pregnant woman. He says it's going to come like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. The analogy of a pregnant woman would simply be this. When those labor pains, those contractions begin, you're not going to stop it. I mean, as much as you may wish that that cup would pass from you, as much as a, as a lady may wish that she not have to undergo the pains of childbearing, they're going to get worse and you can't avoid it. And by analogy, Paul makes clear this judgment day will not be escapable for anybody. There will not be a certain sect of people, a certain nation, a certain socioeconomic strata. Nobody in all creation will be able to avoid the judgment that is coming from Almighty God. It is unavoidable. Indeed, this judgment day is unexpected. It is coming. But Paul changes his tone 
in verse 4. I want you to notice he literally changes who he's speaking to. He has been speaking about them, unbelievers who are going to experience this great judgment day. But in verse 4, he turns it to the second person, you. And Paul says, but you, and then starts to describe who this you is. I want you to notice secondly with me tonight, that this judgment day that Paul speaks of, it's not just coming. Number two, Paul makes clear for us that this judgment day is forewarned. And it's forewarned to the you that Paul is speaking of in verse 4. And we'll see pretty clearly who these folks are in verse 4, where he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers. Paul is saying, Brothers, an affectionate term for fellow believers, those who are not in darkness but have been delivered into marvelous light. Paul is saying, but you, brothers, you're not in darkness. Rather, you should not be surprised at this thief. You should not be found, as so much of creation will be found, shocked that Jesus comes back in judgment. When he comes in all of his might and power, you should not be surprised, verse 4 says. Rather, you should remember that you are children of light, children of the day. That analogy draws for us at night in the dark. You can't see well. You don't know what's coming. It's hard to really do much. That's the reason most people tend to stay inside at night. But Paul says, as believers, we are indeed children of the day. The light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ has shone on us. We see the forewarning of this judgment day, and so we will not be found unaware. Indeed, Paul essentially gives us three admonitions as believers in light of this promised coming judgment. So I want you to mark these down under number two. First, I want you to see that Paul calls you and I to be aware or to live aware of his promised second coming. For we see, Paul says, we shouldn't be surprised by this. You shouldn't be caught unaware that he is coming as he said. You and I ought to live in light of this promised second coming. So be prepared, be aware, live daily in light of God's reality. Now that sounds you know, terribly unprofound. You know, if you're a believer, you're going to live in light of God's, the reality of God's being. But my word, so many of us don't. We compartmentalize our lives so easily, and I speak as one of your pastors confessing the great temptation to compartmentalize my life. My time I spend in the Lord with the morning, the time I spend studying, preparing to feed God's Word to God's people, the time I spend fellowshipping with the church on Wednesday night and Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, But then there's this insidious temptation that I and I trust you are tempted with. And that is to, well, not really live in light of God's reality when I'm doing my taxes or when I'm at the grocery store or when a grievous problem comes into my life. We tend to not live aware that judgment is coming. Oftentimes this manifests itself in fear of man where you can become so fixated on what tomorrow holds, you totally are living with this myopic, short-sighted view where you forget that God is going to reign victoriously in the end. You forget that He has made these tremendous promises that He will enact justice, that He will have vengeance. It's mine, He declares. And we tend to try to grab it ourselves. 
And so, first Paul is admonishing us. We must live as men and women who are aware, who are not surprised, who are living as children of the light, children of the day. But he admonishes us with a second thing. He calls us not to simply be aware, closely related. He calls you and I as believers to be alert. We ought to live alert in light of this promised day of the Lord. Notice with me, if you will, verse 6. He says, Then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. We tend to sleep in the battle. I often tell this story of several years ago watching the nightly news, and as I was watching the news, the anchor mentioned that America was in its longest war in history, and this was the war with Afghanistan. And I was completely shocked. It startled me because my life hadn't changed altogether too much. I really didn't live like I was in war. Functionally, I was, as a citizen, asleep in the battle. And sitting on that couch that evening, I started to draw these parallels in my mind that I often am asleep in this spiritual battle, that I am not awake, as it were, that I know a lot of things, but functionally, spiritually, I can just exist. I can be numb to a lot of things, fixated on the desires of my flesh, the desires of my eyes, the pride of my own heart. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is calling us, let us not sleep, verse 6 says, as others do. In other words, he's saying the vast majority of mankind is asleep to this. They are willfully closing their eyes to spiritual realities. But Paul says, let us keep awake. That's present tense. It means keep on staying awake. Fight this fight of faith. Stay awake and be sober. That word sober is as the word, the connotation is pretty clear. It's to not be influenced by something that could dampen our senses, our discernment, our diligence. Indeed, he's calling us to be watchful, to be discerning, to be alert. We ought to be watching what's transpiring and not just settling in and saying, you know, fatalistically, God will figure all this out. I'll just kind of live and trust in cheap grace. Oh, far from it. Paul is calling us. Indeed, God is calling you and me tonight. We must, as believers, in light of this coming judgment, we must live aware. We must live alert. And third and finally, Paul draws out for us in verse 8, we must thirdly be armed. Be armed. Because notice what he says in verse 8. He says, well, since we belong to the day, since we have the light of the gospel shining on us and we can see the realities at hand, we know this judgment is coming. Verse 8, he says, then yet again, you and I, we ought to be sober. We ought to, here comes this language of armor. We ought to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, if you are a student of the Word, you're surely familiar with this language of the armor of God. Paul draws this out to a more detailed degree in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. But here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul simply chooses two pieces of this armor as a great reminder to us that as we live in light of eternity, if we think that we can just chill as believers and take our spiritual lives kind of unseriously and just trust that grace is going to be okay and grace will get us through and just kind of put it on cruise control, Paul is calling us to be warned, to beware, 
to not be found unaware, to not be found unalert, indeed not to be found unarmed, for there is a real enemy waging war with your soul. He is desire is for you, and you must not allow him to ever overcome you. You must, as the word says, resist the devil, flee from him. And one way we do this, brothers and sisters, is by, as verse 8 makes clear, putting on the armor of God, the breastplate of faith and love. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, just to kind of draw out the analogy, a breastplate, of course, covers your most vital organs, one of the more important pieces of armor, for if something were to penetrate there, you would in all likelihood lose your life. And so why does Paul use the words faith and love as those Christian virtues, those aspects of our spirituality that would protect our heart, the core of our being? Well, faith is the essential, crucial piece of Christianity. Faith is the key. When Christ calls a man to trust in Him, He is calling him not to do things to earn salvation. He's calling us to confess who we really are and to trust fully, indeed, to place our faith in Christ. So faith becomes the hard outer shell. If you live by faith, all the flaming darts of the evil one will bounce off. Indeed, Paul actually uses the additional piece of armor language in Ephesians about the shield of faith that's going to repel the flaming darts of the evil one. But a cold, hard faith can be pretty uh, disarming to other people. A cold, hard faith can be something that can really you know, make a watching world be perplexed. And there's a reason why God doesn't call us to just this stiff upper lip, this sort of resolute, well, I'm going to be faithful and kind of be morose and a little too stern about it. He doesn't just call us to put on the breastplate of faith. What does he say in addition to this? The breastplate of faith and love. I would describe love in terms of this analogy as kind of the soft inner lining of the breastplate. A breastplate that would have no sort of padding, it would probably hurt and pinch and be horrible. You wouldn't want to wear it. It, You'd start calculating, is this even worth it? Love is that soft inner lining that is going to make living by faith possible and it is going to make a watching world look and wonder, what is going on here? This is prescient for our day and age where there is a watching world wondering, do we actually love as the Christ we claim to love, loved? Do we actually sacrificially love other people? Are we willing to lay aside our rights for the sake of another? Are we really willing, are we really willing to do that which it takes to demonstrate the love of Christ? Paul is calling us in light of this coming judgment, put on this full armor of God. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Indeed, he says, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation, which will guard your mind and your heart in him. You will be so tempted. Indeed, current events may tempt you to despair and wonder, is there any hope? Put on the hope, the helmet of the hope of salvation, which will guard your mind and heart and help you recognize that Christ's promises are sure and that the gospel is indeed, in the final analysis, the only hope for a broken and ever disuniting world. May the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ go powerfully out through you and me, but may we do so not just in love, as critical as that is, but also in truth. We must bring the truth of the gospel, and one critical component to this truth is the coming day 
of the Lord. The coming judgment. Judgment day is coming. Judgment day, brothers and sisters in Christ, is forewarned to you and to me. And third and finally, Paul ends this argument with a third truth about this coming judgment day that we ought to remember and it should indeed sober us. Number three, judgment day, for lack of a better word, is divided. It's divided. In other words, judgment day will be experienced dramatically different by two different kinds of people. And these kinds of people are not delineated, they're not separated based off race, socioeconomic status, cultural background, uh, even goodness, perceived morality, works. There will be a colossal difference on this last judgment day, and the colossal difference, that line will be drawn between those, the Bible says, who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. I want you to see, as Paul concludes in verses 9 through 11, what judgment day is going to look like for those who, of us who are in Christ. Look with me, if you will, at verse 9. Paul says, For God has not destined us as believers for wrath. In other words, you could kind of put in parenthesis, He's not destined you and I for this day of the Lord. We will not stand under the judgment, under the wrath of God. We haven't been destined for wrath. Rather, we've been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or whether we're asleep, we might live with Him. In short, Paul is saying, hear this, one of the ways this judgment day will be divided on the final day is on the one hand, there will be hope for those of us who are in Christ. And I want you to see the two-sided nature to this hope for we as believers. On the one hand, we, as we conceive of this judgment day, we will have hope on that final day. For on that final day, we will not be destined for wrath. We will not stand before Him and worry that we will be judged. For our confidence on that final day will not be, well, was I actually good enough? Was I actually kind enough? Did I do enough things to merit surviving the just, righteous, cosmic judgment of God? Will I be spared this wrath? And my only hope and your only hope on that final day will be our great advocate, indeed our great high priest, Jesus, who made the ultimate sacrifice once for all, completely wiping away our sins. On that final day, we will plead, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, and we will say, God, your word has promised that you have not destined me for wrath. Rather, you have destined me to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him who died for me. And so whether I'm asleep on that final day, meaning I've died, or whether I'm awake and the Lord returns in my lifetime, I need not worry. I am going to live with Him. I am going to reign with Him for my hope on that day will be Jesus Christ. But I told you there's two sides to this hope. There's not just going to be hope for us on the final day. I want you to see that when you, we think of the end times, it ought, not, not, it ought not just be something in the future. For the end times, as I began our message tonight, it ought to impact the way we live today. Indeed, we ought to live in light of tomorrow. For there is a hope for us today. Paul makes this clear finally in verse 11, where he says, 
Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up in light of these things, just as you are doing. In other words, Paul says we ought to minister these wonderful realities of the end times one to the other. Indeed, he says we should minister the concept of the day of the Lord. What? This great judgment day? We ought to use that to encourage one another, to build one another up? You've heard the word edify means the same thing? Well, how on earth can that edify us? The way it does, in fact, Paul even makes clear they've already been doing this, is that when we as believers remember the coming judgment, it will strengthen our faith, it will soften our hearts, and cause us to weep for those who desperately are outside of Christ. It will cause us to love and care for those who desperately need it. It will cause us to lean on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, but for the grace of God go I. It will sober us to stop living in light of the culture and to finally get our eyes up off the horizon and to live in light of eternity. And so we can minister, encourage one another, build one another up by admonishing one another to live like there's no tomorrow. What a wonderful hope we have in Christ that we have hope on the final day and we have a sustaining hope today. But I'd like to conclude our time with one final point that kind of, well, it differentiates itself from the hope we have in Christ. For as you read verses 9 through 11, I would be remiss if I did not take a step back with us and remind us that when Paul says that we are not destined for wrath, the implication is there are a great many who are. Indeed, the implication is there are a great many who will not experience Judgment Day as we will. And so, perhaps tonight you're tuning in. You're just randomly on Facebook or you've heard a few things about church and the uncertainty of this world is making you wonder what sort of messages are even out there, what kind of hope might I have. Today I want you to hear with as much earnestness as I can convey through a video that there is a hope for you, but this hope is not guaranteed. Indeed, for you to experience the hope I, indeed all of us have as believers here at Hickory Grove, to experience that hope, you must turn from your sin. You must confess that you really are in need of Christ. You must look to this Jesus who was hung on a cross, this Jesus who the Bible says died for our sins, who took it away like a substitute. He took the punishment for us. He absorbed the wrath of God so that the wrath of God is no longer on us. This Jesus who is miraculously raised from the dead, who ascended to the Father and is reigning on high. This Jesus who calls you and me to believe in Him. If you simply turn from your sins and trust this Jesus, you place your faith in Him like a miracle, an astounding miracle that separates the Christian message from every religious message in all the world. The Bible promises you will be saved. You will have a hope on that final judgment day. You will not stand under the wrath of God. Oh, brothers and sisters listening tonight, we were made for eternity. It is written on your heart. It is ingrained in the soul of every man. Today I plead by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would turn from your sins and that you would indeed experience the grace and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ and that together as believers we would live like there's no tomorrow.
Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and do with this message what I cannot, and that's take it and apply it to the hearts of those listening. Oh God, would you open eyes, both of believers and unbelievers. Would you change heart, both of believers and unbelievers. Oh God, would you come and would you make us into the image of Jesus as we await that final day where you will indeed come again. Come, Lord Jesus, come is the cry of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.